0: The reading this morning comes from John chapter 6, and um, I'm reading from verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did they began to say surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force withdrew again to a mountain by himself.
1: And now we'll move down to verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking, at, for, looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you, you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. From that, from the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous signs then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world sir they said from now on give us this bread then jesus declared i am the bread of life he who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty but as i told you you have seen me and still you do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me and will raise him up at the last day. Thank you, Pat and Brian. Deborah, do you want to come up and I'll pray for you? Lord God, we thank you for Deborah, we thank you for uh, all the ways in which you have filled her with knowledge and the ability to pass it on to others. And we pray now that as she um, comes to us with all that she's prepared, that you will really uh, speak through her to us and really reveal to to us what you have for us this morning. Transform us, we pray, through the words that Deborah is sharing and let them be your words, we pray, for this church this morning. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.
2: Are you, are you Okay, good you can hear me. Well, good morning, everybody, and it's great to be here this morning to speak to you um, on John chapter 6. It's the chapter we've reached in our bystanders series on John's gospel, and John 6 is what I call a crucial chapter in John's gospel. It's a chapter that contains a sign for the people and a sermon about a person and we're going to focus on that person this morning the lord jesus christ according to john we can't afford to ignore jesus we can't afford to misunderstand him or to sideline him we need to notice him to heed him he's worth it says john now in our series um, on in john's gospel already we refer to john 20 verse 31 where john tells us what his purpose is in writing this gospel You will be familiar with these words now, I think we've referred to them most weeks so far in this series. These things are written, says John, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Now you've just listened to this reading from John's Gospel, and I'm sure you've already realized that those themes of life and believing are so key to this chapter. That's why I say this is a crucial chapter in John's Gospel. And I'm going to say something a tad controversial. might get me in a little bit of trouble with Martin because we're only halfway through this series. Um, But if you haven't got time to read the whole of John's Gospel and you want to know what it's about, you could just read this chapter because the key themes in John's Gospel are reiterated in Chapter 6 of this Gospel. This chapter, like the Gospel as a whole, holds out the hope of eternal life to us by challenging our preconceptions about Jesus, by confronting any complacency we might feel towards Jesus, and by encouraging faith in Jesus. Jesus, if you like, is this evangelist, this writer's good news that he wants to share for us. And doesn't this world today need good news? The gospel readers who first read this gospel They too needed good news. Their lives and their world wasn't like they wanted it to be, just as surely our world today isn't as we want it to be. The good news for every era of human history is contained in this gospel, and it is this. There is more to Jesus than miracles. So don't be a disinterested bystander. There's more to Jesus than you have grasped. There's more to Jesus than you can possibly imagine. Pay attention to him. Heed him. And I want to unpack that good news message um, this morning by thinking about those important words on the top of your um, screen there for you. I am the bread of life. This is how Jesus decides to describe what he's about in this chapter, this crucial chapter. I am the bread of life. Now, one of the things you notice straight away about those words is that they are metaphorical. They're not literal. These are not literally bread that we can eat physically. Um, there is a metaphor. Um, I am the bread of life, and we have to work quite hard at understanding metaphors properly um, because sometimes metaphor means something in one context; and in another context, means something quite different. Um, so I want to try and unpack what this phrase means. I want to do it um, by looking at a number of themes. And just so that you know how much we have got to get through, I've got six themes I want to bring out in relation to this particular phrase, I am the bread of life. And the first one is this. Jesus meets physical needs. Jesus meets physical needs. Now, it's impossible to miss that this chapter Starts with the miraculous and abundant provision of real foodstuff to a crowd who are hungry. A few barley loaves, two fish offered to Jesus by a small lad. This minuscule meal miraculously feeds a large crowd, a huge crowd of at least 5,000 men. Now, I've already hinted, I hope the fact that I don't think this food miracle is the main focus of this chapter, but it is its starting point, And it certainly caught the attention of the crowds in Jesus's time. And I think that was for at least two very good reasons. The first reason is this. When you live hand to mouth, when you work not because you want holidays or cars or luxuries, but literally to put the simplest of food on the table, then free food means an awful lot to you. And there may be people here who simply need to hear that good news today that Jesus can meet physical needs. There are certainly people in our community for whom this is good news. There are refugees who have lost everything in Europe for whom this is indeed good news. There are refugees, those in need throughout our world, for whom this miracle is good news, Jesus can meet physical needs. Now, when I was growing up, there were times when my parents um, literally had run out of money. Um, And in later years, my parents told me on such days that they were often blessed by an unexpected one-pound note just arriving on our doormat when it was needed. That does age me, I know, but there were one-pound notes um, many years ago. Um, And on this mothering Sunday, I'm grateful to my mum, who's sitting here this morning, because she explained her belief that God had provided our needs in the hardest of times for us. And because I always told those stories, I've never doubted that God can provide my physical needs. Mums, and of course dads, have vital roles to play in laying foundations of faith in their children. But there is something else here. Someone had to put that money through our letterbox for us to receive it on our doormat. Like this young lad, someone had participated with God in his act of providing for us. And I know many of you here do that in unsung ways, similar to this contribution of this unnamed lad in the story. Jesus uses people who surrender what they have in order to meet the needs of others. Free food for hungry people is indeed good news, and that's the first reason why I think um, this miracle caught the crowd's attention. But the second reason, I think, is this. The provision of food was something the Jewish people expected would happen when their Messiah came. They anticipated when the Messiah came, he would provide for their physical needs. In other words, they had preconceptions about what God would do for them. And this is why they wanted to grab Jesus, I hope you notice it in verse 15, to make him king, an interesting choice of words there, not just leader, but king. But did you know what Jesus did in verse 15? I hope you notice it. He withdrew from them. Although he could meet their physical needs, although he had met their physical needs, his mission and his calling were greater than being the physical provider they expected. This crowd of hungry people, if you like, needed to heed the fact that Jesus is not here just to give them stuff. They need to be less concerned with the product and more concerned with the person. Jesus withdrew because there's more to Jesus than miracles. There's more to life than physical food, and this is really good news. There's more to Jesus than we have grasped. There's more to Jesus than we have imagined. And that leads us to our second theme relating to this phrase, I am the bread of life, and it's this. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses, and you might think, why on earth is Deborah telling me this this morning? I've got no interest in Moses, doesn't really interest me at all. But one of the reasons why this metaphor works when Jesus used it was because it engaged Jesus' listeners. The Jewish people loved their national history and they were obsessed with the place Moses had in that history. And perhaps we have our own faith and national heroes or heroines too. Now, treasuring our history is not a bad thing. We are told to remember God's acts in the past and teach them to our children. Another important role, perhaps, for mums and dads. But sometimes we can get the wrong perspective on our history, and I think John wants to address this in this chapter. John brings Moses into this chapter right at its start. Did you notice in verse 4 we have... These words, the Jewish Passover feast was near. Now, all the Gospels tell us about this miracle, but John is the only Gospel that records this detail. The Passover was near. And of course, Moses was involved in that great act of deliverance, the Passover, the escape from Egyptian captivity. It was also there during the following years when God provided for his people in the Sinai desert and provided them with manna, miraculous food. And the people watching Jesus wanted another Moses to bring them out of oppression again, to provide them with food again, just like Moses did. But in verses 30 to 34, Jesus is challenges their views about Moses and what he did and didn't achieve. He reminds the people that it was God who provided manna in the desert, not Moses. He reminds the people that when they think of manna, they should be given the thanks and the glory to God himself. And when the chapter returns to this theme of manna, we didn't have a chance to read, but in verse 48 to 50, if you've got your Bibles, you might want to just flick across to it. When the passage returns to this theme of manna, it's so that we can hear loud and clear that Jesus surpasses Moses in terms of greatness. We can appreciate the extent of the greatness of Jesus that John wants us to grasp if we think a bit more about Moses and his life and how he's recorded in Jewish history. He spoke to God face to face. He received God's name. He encountered God in a burning bush. He received God's law. He led his people to the Promised Land. And the resounding gong in John's Gospel is that Moses' achievements in the history of God bringing salvation to his people was just a foretaste, just an inkling in comparison with the role of Jesus Christ. Jesus can offer God's people more than just physical, time-restricted salvation. Jesus offers eternal salvation and sustenance. You see, the people wanted another Moses, but God had something greater in mind. That's why it's worth heeding Jesus afresh. There's more to Jesus than miracles. There's more to life than we live in past glories. And John is telling us there's more to Jesus than you have grasped. There's more to Jesus than you and I can imagine. Why is that so? Well, our third theme perhaps explains a bit further. And the third theme is this one. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's also claiming to be God's son, the only saviour. Now, this is another shock. Another reason to stop and take heed of Jesus is impossible to miss the connections between these words I am the bread of life and God's revelation to Moses of his own name in Exodus 3 in Exodus 3:14 God reveals himself as I am and uses these very words in the same way as Jesus uses them here but the Lord God is not defined by anyone else he simply says I am who I am, and this active verb conveys something of the eternal being, presence, and activity of God. And all the I am sayings in John's Gospel, I'm sure you know others of them, link Jesus' identity to the identity of the Lord God himself. But you know, there's more connections between Exodus 3 and John 6 than just those words, I am next Exodus 3, 7 to 8, we have a definition there of what salvation looks like in terms of the activity of God himself. And the Lord tells Moses, I've seen my people's misery. I've heard their cries for help. And then he says this, I have come down to rescue, to bring up. And for me, that's a summary of what salvation is all about. God has come down to rescue in order to bring his people up. And those phrases about coming down and rescuing and bringing up are so remarkably reiterated in John chapter 6. You may have noticed them in some of the verses that were read to us. But if you look at verse 33, um, verse 38, verse 39, a bit further on in the passage, verse 50, verse 51, verse 58, we've got references there to the bread of heaven coming down. And what is the purpose? Again, the phrase is reiterated in this chapter. It is to raise them up to eternal life. Verse 39, verse 40, and again in verse 54. So when Jesus uses these, this word, these words, I am the bread of life, he's using it to claim divinity. He is one with God the Father, but he's also saying he is Saviour. That is why his will and God's will are so united. Another key theme in those verses we read, verse 38 and verse 39. They are united in the purpose of bringing salvation, and the minds of the crowds listening to Jesus would have made connections with many of their scriptures, but perhaps particularly these two chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah 43 and 45, because those chapters in Isaiah emphasize that there is only one God, there is only one Savior, and you get these sort of words over and over again in those chapters I am God from ancient of days I am he I even I am he who blots out your transgressions notice that theme of salvation again what salvation is all about I am the Lord there is no other and as Jesus' words echoed these well-known popular scriptures his audience would have sat up and took notice they will begin to take their eyes off the presenting circumstances they were faced with. Jesus is claiming to be God himself and the saviour of the world. And some will be taking heed now. Some will indeed begin to realise that there's more to Jesus than miracles. Because there's more to life than just temporary deliverance. And John reminds us all to take heed. There's more to Jesus than we have grasped. There is more to Jesus than we have ever Imagined, And that brings us to our next theme related to this phrase, I am the bread of life, and it's this. Jesus' offer of eternal life is for everyone. This is another shock. This is also unexpected. Jesus does not restrict his offer to bring salvation, his mission to bring salvation to one group of people. There's only one qualification. Verse 37, whoever comes, I will never drive out. The qualification is that you need to come to Jesus. And I love the simplicity of that idea of coming to Jesus. Even a child can come. You don't need intellectual abilities. You don't need certain characteristics. You don't need to belong to a certain group. To come simply means to choose to leave one place and go to another. There's another verse I want to draw your attention to here, verse 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And if we look at that verse alone, you might just think, well, maybe I can't come to Jesus because the Father isn't drawing me. But verse 40 is key here. My Father's will, verse 40, is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. So God's desire is that everyone might believe and receive eternal life. There's no coercion, but there is a choice. To come and to believe, or to stay away and not believe. People are drawn to God, to Jesus, drawn to God by his alluring love you'll be familiar I think with Jeremiah 31 verse 3 explains it this way God says to his people I have drawn you with unfailing kindness I have loved you with an everlasting love and as I was thinking about these words something I love to do came to mind Um, I'm sure it's something that many mums here and many others, aunts, uncles, grandparents, etc, etc, have done many times. But I love to stand on the opposite side of a room to a young child and bend down and make my eyes meet theirs and put my arms down and entice them and encourage them to run into my arms. What do I want to do? I want to enfold them, don't I, in my arms of love for them. And that is what I think God does. No one is excluded from coming and running into those arms. He allures us with his love. He doesn't drag anyone kicking and screaming. It'd be terrible if I grabbed a child and brought them to me and they didn't want to come. That would be no pleasure, no delight to me at all. But God is delighted when we choose to come to Jesus. And this is a different kind of miracle. It's a miracle of finding salvation. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It's all about who you come to. Maybe the penny is beginning to drop. There's more to Jesus than miracles. There's more to life than where you've come from. There's more to Jesus than you and I perhaps have grasped. There is more to Jesus, more to divine love, than you and I perhaps can possibly imagine. But there's still more. By using this metaphor, bread of life, Jesus also makes it clear that his mission involves sacrifice. By the time we reach the end of chapter 6, there is another shock. There's a dramatic change of language and intensity. We move from talking about eating bread to the language of eating Jesus' flesh. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh has eternal life. Jesus says this bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Two things just to notice quickly about that verse, verse 51. This language of sacrifice would have certainly caught Jesus' listeners' attention for two reasons. Jesus willingly gives his flesh. It's not taken from him. And it is a vicarious giving, a giving on behalf of someone else. He gives his flesh for the life of the world. Notice that. Whole world is specified again here in this verse. Jesus, John's unique way of describing the miracle at the start of the chapter, I don't know if you noticed it when Pat was reading this section to us, but verse 11 talks about Jesus giving thanks and distributing the bread. Only John uses those exact words. And the way the sermon is wrapped up at the end of the chapter, verse 56 talks about eating my flesh, drinking my blood. It makes use of language that we associate with the Lord's Supper, um, the Eucharist, that meal that Christians from early times used to help them remember um, the significant moment of Jesus' death. And so Jesus himself is linking his ownership of this title, Bread of Life, to the requirement to give up his life for the sake of others. Now this is another shocking idea because when you're expecting a military king to take all your troubles away, you don't expect sacrifice, you expect glory. But you know, in John's gospel, Jesus' moment of glorification is indeed his death as he is physically lifted up or glorified on the cross. That work of salvation, the will of the Father is complete. It looks like a moment of defeat. But sacrifice is Jesus's glory. You see, there's more to Jesus than miracles. There's more to life than being a popular hero and gaining popular glory. And John wants his readers, in his own time and now, to heed Jesus's words, to understand that there's more to Jesus than we have grasped. There's more to Jesus than we can possibly imagine. And that brings me to my last theme here, Simply this, Jesus' claim to be bread of life demands a response. You have to sit up and take heed of Jesus now because Jesus' claim, I am the bread of life, is not just a statement. It is an appeal. Here is a challenge you need to respond. In this chapter, we see lots of people responding in different ways to Jesus. You may have picked some of these up. Verse 15, some people drop to the wrong conclusions, some people ask questions, some people grumble. That's mentioned a couple of times in this chapter. Others turn back. They were committed to following Jesus and then they turn back. Judas sets his mind on ultimate betrayal at the end of the chapter. And Simon Peter declares, Lord, we have come to believe. How do we respond? Have we ignored or heeded Jesus's ministry and message? To come and to believe in Jesus requires a new mindset, one that no longer says with this crowd, I hope you notice these words in verse 28, what must I do? That's what the crowd want to know, what must I do? But a new mindset instead requires us to believe what he, the bread of life, has already done. It's a humble mindset. Coming to Jesus like a child, believing in him, puts us all on a level playing field. It's not about what we deserve or earn, it's a place of humility. But coming to Jesus also requires a new lifestyle. There's something very intense and personal and all-consuming about partaking of the bread of life. Now, I didn't know if to say this or not, but personally, um, I dislike the term intimacy when we talk about our relationship with God. Um, for me, it's a bit of a wishy-washy term because when we talk about Intimacy, you talk about passing moments of pleasure, about moments of heightened feelings, perhaps, and heightened emotions. But the description of us taking into ourselves the flesh and blood of Jesus suggests that when we come to Jesus, he gives of himself to us in a permanently ongoing way. The new relationship with Jesus we live out is like the unity the Father and the Son themselves endure. One in purpose, one in will, one in love. Partaking of Jesus as the bread of life means unity with him. It means we love like him. It means we sacrifice like him. It means that we find a purpose and a quality of life with him now that will last for eternity. And John wants us to heed Jesus afresh and realise that there's more to Jesus than you and I have grasped. There's more to life with Jesus than you and I can possibly imagine. There's always more once we have come to Jesus. Because partaking of life with Jesus, sharing in his sacrifice and mission is a continuous, ongoing, dynamic and active process. The food miracle is not the focus of this chapter. The value of this miracle is what it tells us about Jesus. There's no place for mere bystanders when we meet Jesus, the bread of life, because he brings all of history together. You might have noticed this um, interchange of time zones in this chapter, the past, the present, and the future. All of history is his story, and it's a story that demands a response. Is this the first time your story has crossed paths with Jesus, the bread of life? How are you going to respond? And if you've already come to Jesus and united your life with his, do your passions and priorities line up with the Jesus that's declared in this chapter? He's never sidetracked from his mission to bring salvation to the world. i suggested that Jesus wants his readers, wants us, to heed Jesus again, to give him fresh attention, to think about Jesus in new ways. At his installation as Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby said this about heeding Jesus. A Christ-heeding life changes the church. A Christ-heeding church changes the world. Let us provoke each other to heed the call of Christ, to be clear in our declaration of Christ, committed in prayer to Christ, and we will see a world transformed. This chapter in John's Gospel encourages us to heed Christ again, to look at him afresh, to heed him as he declares himself to be the bread of life. This is the means by which this world will be ultimately transformed. This is the good news. It's the good news this world today and this world always will need to hear. It's the news that Jesus surpasses our expectations, he exceeds our knees, he conquers our fears, he replaces confusion with hope. He lifts our hearts from the mundane to the eternal for he is the hope of the world, the still centre of life in the midst of even the darkest moments of trouble. Because Jesus is the bread of life, evil won't have the final word. The good news, this good news, is now in our hands. We hang our faith and hope on Jesus' body and blood, and we draw from there our thinking, our willing, our living and our speaking. This is how we take his life, the life of the bread of life, into our own lives. You know, in times of war, we hear a lot about collateral damage, don't we? The devastating consequences of warfare. People heeding Christ. People coming to Christ. People seeking Christ. Create not collateral damage, but collateral blessing. Even in damaged places and damaged lives. And that collateral blessing can change the world for the better. A Christ-heeding life changes the church. A Christ-heeding church changes the world. We thank God for his word to us, his forever word to us. Jesus, the bread of life, the one who came down so that we, all of us, might be raised up, amen. How might you participate with God in meeting other people's physical needs today? How are you responding to Jesus' claim to be the bread of life? Do you struggle with the new mindset required, or the new lifestyle required? Do you put Jesus in a straitjacket? expecting him to fulfill your own ideas and preconceptions? Or are you open to the fact that there is still more for you to learn about Jesus? Are you consumed by the mundane things of everyday life? Or are you focused on heeding Christ, adopting his priorities and participating in his work to bring the good news of eternal life to the
0: world.